what we're going to talk about today, I preached a message on uh, February 16th, 2021, which is over two years ago, on a Tuesday night. So many of you may not, may not have even heard this message. And it was called Making a King. And I'm still convinced, personally, and I, it's weird saying this about my own message, but I'm still convinced that's the most important message that I've ever given as a pastor of this church. I continually go back to that message as a reminder of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So here's what I want to do. I want to um, go ahead and bring this, this whiteboard over here, just in case I need it today. But the, the primary thing that I just encourage you guys with from that message was this, and I want to reiterate this today because this is kind of a part two of that message. It's this, the right thing in the wrong season is the wrong thing. The right thing in the wrong season. I'm just going to write this out so you have it the whole day. So the right thing in comma, the wrong season is the wrong thing. Okay. Right thing in the wrong season is the wrong thing. Maybe I would even say it like this. The right thing is not the right thing until it is the right season. Does that make sense? So a lot of us, well, all of us have callings, for example, to do many different things in the kingdom. It could be anywhere from, you know, banking to economics to, God help us if this is you, I pray for you, but politics. You know what I mean? And then some of that could be ministry. Some of that could be, uh, and ministry takes on many different forms, but whatever that is, uh, it could be just be, simply being a mom uh, or a dad or whatever. But whatever that is, the right thing for you, unless it is in the right season or the fully matured season, is the wrong thing. I'm called to be a pastor, but if I step into being a pastor before I am ready or before the right time or season, if I do, I'm not called to be a pastor yet. So I'm operating in something that I'm not called to do, even if I am called to ultimately be a pastor. Does that make sense? So the right thing in the wrong season is the wrong thing. There is something critical that happens in the seasons, might just be one, might be multiple, between when you are anointed for something and when the Lord places you there. Unfortunately, this critical time is also when we tend to bypass because it takes too long and we're in too big of a hurry. This is me. Maybe, maybe that's none of y'all. This is me. I'm always way too much in a hurry. What I want to talk about today is wholeness of perspective. Wholeness of perspective. We've been in a season where the Lord has redefined wholeness for us individually and as a church, but wholeness is only as good as our ability to remain in wholeness in the future instead of repeating the same broken mindsets over and over again. We shouldn't need to be reminded that we're whole over and over and over and over again. We should be reminded that we're whole and that become the thing that changes our perspective to where we live and breathe and move in wholeness the rest of our lives. You know what I'm saying? The revelation doesn't come to us so that we can continually be revived by revelation. The revelation comes to us so that we can be revived and then live. So as a refresher, wholeness is you and I living in and through the full understanding of who you are in Christ. Wholeness is us living in and through the full understanding of who we are in Christ. When you are living out of the truth that you are joined to God through Christ in love unconditionally, you are living in wholeness. Wholeness is both a reality that you are and what we're going to talk about today, a philosophy, way of thinking, that you see everything through. The latter part is what we're going to take the next few minutes and explore. How do you see things in your life? Just a just think about this. You don't have to shout it out. Not that y'all would anyway. How do you see things? How do you process things? How do you see your life and your future? 
Because you can know what is true about you right now, but if you still have a broken perspective, you'll start to compromise. Inevitably, you'll start to compromise what is true about you for what you think needs to be true about you later. When you start getting impatient, even if you know who you are right now, you'll start to make little compromises to make yourself into what you know you're ultimately supposed to be too quickly. Waiting on the Lord is not passive, it's active. Waiting on the Lord is not doing anything. It's not not doing anything, I should say. Waiting on the Lord is doing something very precise and very right. Waiting on the Lord is a choice to inherit from the Lord rather than take from the Lord. But while we are waiting, things are happening around and within us that will ultimately lay the foundation for the very things the Lord has called us to. So I'm going to use the same examples today, but I'm going to point out some things I did not point out in that last message. So if you missed it, this is great. If you were there, this is great too. King David, Israel's great king, had two sons that were absolutely in line for the throne of David and a third son who actually becomes king and takes the throne. I'm going to show you this in a second. There is a major difference between the first two and the last one. So I'm going to review these for just a minute and then we'll get into some new territory. The first son in line for the throne is a man by the name of Absalom. How many of you uh, grew up in church and you ever heard the story about a man named Absalom? Anybody? Okay, cool. That's more than I thought. I I never did. So let me read this. Uh, This is 2 Samuel 15. I'm going to read six verses. So if you want to turn there, you can. If you don't, that's totally fine. And while you turn there, I also want to mention one more thing. This is not in my notes, but I thought about this this morning. So this is kind of what we're talking about, definitely what we're talking about today. But I thought about this too. Okay, so if the right thing in the wrong season is the wrong thing, why would the Lord, um, why would the Lord unveil who we are ultimately supposed to be knowing there is a long season of waiting after he reveals it? Because it would be a lot easier for the Lord not to say a word until you're mature and him say, oh, by the way, you're called to be a pastor. Here's the keys to the church. Easy. But what happens when the Lord says, and I'm just using a pastor because I, I can speak to that. What happens when the Lord says you're called to be a pastor, but you're also called to wait for it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years? That seems kind of annoying because you know exactly what you're supposed to be, and yet you're not the thing that you're supposed to be for a long season of time. Why would the Lord do this? It's because the Lord reveals his ultimate plan for your life so that you have correct vision to see the waiting period. So you know when things are happening to you and things are not what you thought they would be and situations are turning out not like you thought they would turn out, when all of that's happening, you know what the Lord spoke, therefore it brings context to all of this stuff that wouldn't, other than that, have context. So, so I'll use Brandon. Brandon's about to be a school teacher. Brandon knew, I would assume, you knew you were going to be a school teacher when you went into college, I would assume. Is that correct? Okay, shortly after you started college. So how many years ago did you decide I'm going to be a teacher or did you know I'm going to be a teacher? Three years. Okay, three years. Awesome. So three years ago, Brandon knew I'm going to be a teacher. And since then, he's gone through this whole process of being educated and raised up to be a teacher. He just passed his test with what? Tell me the score again because I want to celebrate this. 155 out of 170, which is amazing. So can we just give Brandon a hand? That's, a, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So he's about to be a teacher in the fall. So three years ago, this is what I want to do with my life. Three years later, it's about to come to pass. And, and in just the beginning stages, if Brandon did not know three years ago, I'm going to be a teacher, 
the next three years would have not made sense at all, and he probably would have quit. Knowing this makes absolute no sense why I'm going through these classes and learning all of this stuff, and then teaching in a class to be trained up by other teachers who have gone before me, none of that makes any sense unless you're going to be a teacher. So the Lord will reveal your calling to you before you go through this season of being matured so that when junk hits the fan in your mind, now for God, it's nothing's hitting the fan. But in your mind, when the cards start to fall, you'll know this is all part of the process that the Lord is sending me through because I know what he promised me. Does that make sense? Okay, I was told to not ask if that makes sense, so I apologize for saying that. So I'm, I'm learning how to communicate better because I say um too much and I say you guys way too much. So just so you know, I'm working on that. Okay, 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 6. Now that I said that, you're going to, every time I say that, you're going to think about it. So I should have never said anything. <clears throat> so here we go. 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 6. Let me just read this. And then this gives you an idea of the culture before us. If you think the world is bad now, go read the Old Testament. We're a lot better than they were. Verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the road into the gate. And when anyone brought a suit before the king for judgment, Absalom would call out and say, from what city are you from? When the person said, your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no one disputed, or excuse me, deputed, not disputed. There was no one deputed by the king to hear you. Absalom said, moreover, if only I were judge in the land, then all who had a suit or cause might come to me and I would give them justice. When people came near to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of them and kiss them. You'd go to jail if you do that today. Verse 6, thus Absalom did to every Israelite who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom, listen to this, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Do you see this language? He stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Absalom in this moment, is, it's really interesting because, let me just, let me just read some, some back, backdrop for you. David's first son, Amnon, was killed by Absalom after Amnon violated Absalom's full sister, Tamar. You can go back and read this. It's a really, really weird story. I'm not going to get into it today. We don't know what happened to David's second son, who is named Kiliab or Daniel. Could also be his name. Uh, we just don't know what happened to him. But he died. We don't know how, but he's not in the picture anymore. Therefore, Absalom was the third son, and because his two oldest brothers were no longer in the picture... Absalom was in line for the throne. It was his. However, in a scheme to take the throne before David's death and blessing, so to take it prematurely, Absalom forces himself to kingship. And, and this was after fleeing from home and living away from his father's house because of killing his older brother. Absalom was in line to be king. David, and then next up was Absalom. And in that culture, the firstborn, and in this case, the oldest living, because the first two are not in the picture anymore, was the one that was in line to be king. It was his throne. But we see here in 2 Samuel 15 that Absalom, in an attempt to short-circuit the process, Instead of inheriting the throne of his father, he steals it from underneath him. So what happened to him? Absalom, a few chapters later, is killed in battle by Joab's armor bearers. Let me, look, let me show you what, you don't have to turn there, but this is just a couple pages over, so if you want to, you can. In 2 Samuel 18, 18, listen to what this says. Absalom's just died. 
And this is how his story wraps up. This is how the writer of 2 Samuel wraps it up. It says this, Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself a pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar by his own name. It is called Absalom's Monument to this day. And that's how his story ends. The, the writer of 2 Samuel ends the story of Absalom. It begins with him killing his older brother. And then the next stage is he steals the throne of David. The next stage is he's killed because of it. And then the final period to his story is, oh, by the way, if you want to know anything you need to know about Absalom, you need to know this. In his lifetime, he wanted his name to be remembered, so he built an idol. He built up this monument about him that looks like him and is named after him so that people would remember his own name. If that doesn't sound familiar, wake up. Because we're pretty good in the church about building monuments to ourselves to make our names be remembered. Usually those monuments are called Facebook and Instagram, but we build up these monuments and names to be remembered, to try to take things prematurely that we are not ready for, and then we mourn when those monuments and the people that built those monuments come crashing down inevitably. So he's killed. Absalom dies pursuing what was rightfully his because he was unwilling to wait for it. The right thing in the wrong season or the right thing prematurely was his death. The thing that his life was destined for killed him. He was, he was called to be king. And him being king ended up killing him. Why? Because it was not his time. Much of our disappointment as it relates to our calling, okay, this is what I'm specifically speaking to. Much of our disappointment as it relates to our calling and as it relates to God is complete fantasy. Because we don't have what we think we should have by now, we'll live disappointed as if something is wrong. A, a whole perspective with us and God and our calling will make it really difficult to be disappointed with how life is playing out because you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that at the proper time, the Lord will give you what he promised. A whole perspective will make it very difficult for you to be disappointed in the Lord. Why? Because if your perspective is whole, you know that everything the Lord is doing, even when it seems like he's not doing anything, is on purpose to get you to what he promised you. So if we live disappointed, you know, I'll, I'll just give you an example. Um, those of you that are single, okay? Those of you that are single, might be disappointed that the Lord hasn't brought you the right person yet. And why would you be disappointed that the Lord hasn't brought you the right person? On what grounds are you disappointed that the Lord hasn't brought you the right person? The grounds are comparison. In, in what other way, and I'm speaking to somebody who's married, so I know it's easy, you know, it's easy for me to say, right? But on what grounds do we get disappointed in what the Lord seems to be not doing? Comparison. Because you see all your friends getting married and all your friends having kids and you see how old you are and you're like, well, Lord, I've, you know, I'm getting older. I'm in my 30s. You know what I'm saying? If y'all are in your 20s, don't even talk. You know what I'm saying? You got a long time. Lord, I'm in my 30s. I thought by now. Said who? For the Lord, he's looking at this situation. He's, he's looking at the situation saying, it's right on time. You're perfect where you are. And you're saying, my Lord, the Lord has forgotten about me. The Lord, and the Lord said, I haven't forgot about anything. It's just not time. 
but I'm maturing the right person for you and I'm maturing you to be the right person for them. And at the proper time, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. You guys are seeing this play out right now, Angela and Ryan. I mean, you are literally watching, you're seeing this play out in your lives right now. But, th- but this is, we get, we get so disappointed in the Lord not doing what he said, and he is doing what he said. It's just not in the time that we thought he should be doing it. So in that moment, the thing that really needs to happen is for him to let us wait a lot longer until we get to the point where we say, you know what, I'm just going to trust in the Lord. And nine times out of 10, guess what? The Lord's going to start moving in things. So that's Absalom. The second son in line of succession is Adonijah. 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 It's probably a more Hebrew way of saying that, but that's what we got. First Kings, flip over a few pages. First Kings 1. First Kings 1. And I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. Now, if you thought Absalom was a crazy story, wait till you hear this. It gets crazier by the minute. Verse 5, 1 Kings 1, a few pages over. Here we go. Now Adonijah, son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now listen to this. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also very handsome, a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. Okay, Absalom, dead. I don't think I want to be a son of David because they're all just falling like flies. David, Absalom dies. So now David will hand the kingdom over, if everything plays out correctly, to Adonijah. But Adonijah, in the same way, gets tired of waiting, exalts himself, and declares that he will be king. Declares that he will be king. But there's a really interesting detail in this story. So so Adonijah exalted himself, saying, I'll be king. He was eventually killed by King Solomon. But look at verse 6. This verse is a really odd verse and seems very random. Does it not? Just think about it. Let me read it one more time. It's just two verses. Adonijah exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next to Absalom. Huh? What? It's a really odd verse. Remember what I said about odd verses. Another way you could say verse 6, the first part of it, is his father never corrected him. His father never corrected him. Adonijah's destiny was to be king, but because he never had a father to lead him in the right ways and protect him from the wrong ways, he failed and eventually died. The right thing without right discipleship is the wrong thing. This is the danger with spiritual fathers doing the relevant thing today. Eventually, sons are going to be in places of authority, but because they were not raised up in the ways of the Lord, they are going to fall short of their potential, and even if it was their destiny, they will miss the mark of the ultimate thing they were designed for. We even see this in many who are in authority right now. Because they lack the discipleship that is supposed to come from a spiritual father or mother, They say and preach and lift things that have or will be their weakness. But the matter is twofold because it's not just a father or a mother who is willing to disciple. It's a son or daughter willing to submit to discipleship. So I'm speaking to a room full of people who do this really well in both ways. So this is more of a reminder for many, but... It might be convicting as well if you aren't living in this. 
Ephesians 4 says that the gifts that Jesus gives are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are the gifts, Paul says in Ephesians 4, that, the, that Jesus gives to the church. Those are the gifts. And what are they for? They're for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. What work of the ministry? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That's the work of the ministry. So it's the gifts that Jesus gives to the church, but it's also the work of the ministry. So what does this mean? It means that the anointed are designed to let their anointing flow down, not remain at the head. So, okay. So if I'm, let's say prophet, because that's the, the, the big one today. If I'm a prophet, which I'm not saying I operate in the office of a prophet, but I'm just giving you an example, okay? If I'm a prophet, what it does not mean for me to be a prophet is for me to stand on stage with a microphone and prophesy to you what the Lord has said. That might happen, but that is not the primary role of a prophet. The pro because what happens is uh, when the anointing meets narcissism, it becomes everyone living vicariously through the one who has a gift. And the only reason the Lord gives anyone a gift is so that you can then take that gift and give it to others. The, the reason the view of the anointing that we have in Scripture is the oil flowing down from Aaron's head through his beard and down through his feet is that's how the anointing is designed to flow. So a prophet is not the one who tells you what God said to them. A prophet is one who teaches you how to hear from the Lord yourself. Do you see this? An apostle means sent one. We've made apostles the, I mean, we've made them other than holy. And I'm not dishonoring anyone who operates in this office but apostle is the least religious of all the gifts that Jesus says he gives in Ephesians 4. Paul says that Jesus gives in Ephesians 4. Apostles from the Romans. I've shared, let's just remind you, when, when the Romans would take over a newly acquired territory, and I say that really lightly, by acquired, I mean they killed everybody until they submitted. But when they take over a territory, they would send in an apostle who would go in with the culture of Rome and, call, and, and evangelize, maybe you could even say, this area in Roman culture until that area looked and felt and smelt and tasted just like any other Roman area. So when you go into this territory, you know you are in Rome. That was an apostle. So apostle just means sent one. So for someone to operate as an apostle, it simply means they carry a culture of the kingdom of God with them and they are in charge of initiating that culture in whatever area they're in. So a sent one is not the one who is the sole apostle that everyone lives through. A sent one is one who dares everyone around them to be sent ones. An evangelist isn't the one who visits the church and you bring all your unsaved friends, right? So that the evangelist can save them. I don't, I don't even know where to begin with that theology. The evangelist saved them. So the evangelist that comes in is not called to lead all your friends to Jesus. It's to teach you how to lead all your friends to Jesus yourself. The shepherd is called to come in and lead the sheep to ultimately become shepherds of other sheep. The teacher, which is probably where I would land if I was going to land in any of these, comes in to teach you, not so that you can come and hear the newest revelation, but so that you can know enough to then go and teach. That's the gifts. That's how it's supposed to work. I've definitely not done that perfectly. We've not done that perfectly, but we're aiming at that. But, but we, we so put people on pedestals and we so keep people off of pedestals who aren't perfectly dressed, who aren't perfectly versed, who aren't perfectly knowledgeable, who aren't perfect at what they say and how they say it. And we say, you must not be called to this, but this person, boy, they, they got an anointing on their life. 
No, they're just really talented. But talent and anointing are not the same thing. Now, if you can find someone who is super talented and living in a super measure of anointing, Lord help us. It's amazing. That's what we're designed for, you know? But Adonijah is living his princely life designed to be king with no father in his life to raise him up as a king. And what happens? When there's no discipleship, when there's no fathering, you begin to exalt yourself and make yourself things that you're supposed to inherit from a father because you were never told inheritance is the more excellent way. And if you're never taught that inheritance is vastly different than extortion, you believe if I'm called to be king, why not now? So it's twofold. The anointing's designed to flow down, not remain at the head. So the fathers and mothers live out of step with their anointing when they keep it to themselves instead of pouring it down. And the sons and daughters live out of step with their anointing if they don't align themselves under a father or mother who is pouring out. So, so far, we have two failed kings who are called to be king. It's not looking good. Of course, knowing that, we also know what happens next, so it gives it all good meaning. But if the story stops right here, it's a really bleak thing. Here's the thing. This is about where our story is right now. Not as a, I mean, I'm talking about the church. This is about where we are right here. We need some Solomons who, in the eyes of anyone else, Solomon wasn't even next in line. Solomon's one of the last sons. And not only is Solomon one of the last sons, he's born from Bathsheba. No one's making Solomon king. Yet who builds the permanent dwelling place for the Lord on the earth? Go figure, Solomon. So look at 1 Kings, same chapter, number 1, 15 through 31. This is the chunk of what I'm reading today. So Bathsheba, the same Bathsheba, went to the king in his room. The king was very old. Abishag, which is one of my favorite names in the Bible, Abishag. Somebody should name their dog Abishag. Huh? Or a bunny, yeah. Yeah, I love that name. Um, Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending the king. Bathsheba bowed respected the king, and the king said, what do you wish? She said to him, my Lord, listen to this language right here. What do you wish? She said, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord. Does anybody know what swore means? Promise. You promised your servant by the Lord, your God, saying, your son Solomon shall succeed me as king, and he shall sit on my throne. But now, suddenly, Adonijah has become king, though you, my lord the king, do not know it. There's a, there's a whole message right there. David has no clue what his son has just done. And David's king. Another day. 19. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the children of the king, the priest, Abiathar, and Joab, the commander of the army, but your servant Solomon he has not invited. But you, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass... When my Lord the King sleeps with his ancestors, that my son Solomon and I will be counted offenders. 22. While she was still speaking with the king, the prophet Nathan came in. The king was told, here is the prophet Nathan. When he came in before the king, he, did, he respected the king with his face to the ground. Lord, I need to do better at studying during the week. Nathan said, my Lord, the king, have you said Adonijah shall succeed me as king? 
And he shall sit on my throne for today he has gone down and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's children. Joab, the commander of the army and the priest Abiathar, who were now eating and drinking before him and saying, long live King Adonijah. But he did not invite me, your servant and the priest Zadok. That's big. And Benaiah, son of Jehoiada and your servant Solomon. He has, excuse me, has this thing been brought about by my Lord, the king, and you have not let your servants know who should sit on the throne of my Lord, the king after him. Verse 28, David answered, summon Bathsheba to me. So she came to the king, to the king's presence and stood before the king. The king swore saying, as the Lord lives, who has saved my life from every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, your son Solomon shall succeed me as king, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her head, face to the ground, to the king, and said, May my Lord King David live forever. Adonijah has exalted himself, made himself king. Here, here's what's really interesting about the first part of this. Okay. 1 Kings 15, 30, uh, 15 through 31. 1 Kings 1, 15 through 31. Does anybody notice somebody absent in this whole narrative that I just read? Does anybody notice there is someone that is not present in this entire thing? Solomon. Do you see? How clever is it that the writer does this in contrast to the other two brothers that have come before Solomon is nowhere in any of what I just read. He's not there. The actual person Solomon is not there. He doesn't even appear until verse 39 when Zadok the priest takes the horn of oil from the tent of the Lord and anoints him king. The first time Solomon shows up in person in this story is the verse that he is anointed by Zadok to be king. You ready for this? The first two sons are the leading players in their stories. The leading player in this story, however, is promise. Look at verse 17. How does she start? My Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Your son Solomon shall succeed me as king. The leading player in the other two stories are the people themselves. In this story of who eventually becomes king, the leading player is the promise of the king. Also notice who is present in this story that in the other two stories are not present. Solomon's father and mother. Promise and a father and mother to anoint you in the promise. Do you see what, do you see what the author's trying to do here? Solomon didn't try to usurp the throne of his father. Solomon wasn't even next in line to receive the throne. Solomon simply remained in the promise, and because of his willingness to be patient, he inherited freely what the other sons tried to take by force and failed. Paul, later in the New Testament in Galatians, writes to a church being tempted to conform to Judaistic law in order to be saved. And he says this, Galatians 5, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For what you, whatever you sow, you reap. If you sow to your flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing good, for we will reap a harvest at harvest time if we do not give up. To wait effectively, you have to understand why you are waiting and you have to understand that you will be exalted in the proper time as guaranteed by his promise. 
God's promise is the guarantee of what will come to pass. Isaiah 55 says it. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which it was sent. When God promises, it becomes an exact representation of what must take place. So if you are holding promises from God, you're not holding fragile things. These aren't things that can be broken. You're holding solid, truthful things that will come to pass, listen, whether or not you put your hands on it or off of it. Somebody's gonna be king. You're designed to be king, Absalom. Somebody's gonna be king. David's gonna die and somebody's gonna be anointed king. Whether or not you're king has nothing to do with what you do. Whether or not you become what you're supposed to be has everything to do with how effective you wait on the promise of the Lord to come to pass. And it will come to pass at the proper time. So why are you waiting? Why are you waiting on something that you are waiting for right now? Maybe you're waiting on a bunch of things. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not in this season. Maybe right now you are in the right season with the right thing and the right time and everything's great. But I promise you, if you're in that season, coming up is going to be because the Lord is always lifting us to higher places in order to echo what is within us to the world around us until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So no matter what you're in, you're going to be in a season in the future, if you're not in this right now, where you're going to be waiting on the Lord. And the question that you have to ask yourself then is why are you waiting? And it's because God's love for you is so great that he refuses to give you anything in fullness prematurely. Let me tell you a story, if Jordan doesn't mind. I actually didn't ask her if I could share this story, so I might be getting in trouble. Uh, Jordan moved here 2011, right? Yeah, 2011. I didn't move here till 2013. Now, I won't give you all, all the details or anything like that, but for those two years that Jordan moved here, it was, it was Hades, you know what I'm saying? Hell, okay. Yeah, for, for those of you that don't know Greek, okay? Um, but I just don't know who's watching. So anyway, but I, I could feel the, the people in the room saying, what is Hades? So, um, <laughs> so for those two years, it was just not fun. She had no family here. She, I mean, she, she moved here for a job, right? She had no family here. Her family's in Conway, two and a half hours away more like three hours in my opinion, but Jordan will tell you too. But they're, they're living, she has nobody here, you know? And for two years, she's asking, why am I here? And then in 2013, God rearranges a bunch of stuff and primarily used my, my craziness, wanting to be famous, to move me here to a really, really, really large church in Columbia. And the second week, that I'm here, I meet Jordan in the lobby. Four months later, we're engaged. You know what I mean? Now, if you go back to 2011, if the Lord had spoken to Jordan and said, you're here on purpose, and maybe he did, but you're here on purpose. If you'll just wait, I am raising something up for you that in two years, you're gonna look back and say, thank God I moved here in 2011. And so we met. My, the reason I share that with you is a lot of you, you may be waiting on some really practical stuff. It's okay to want to be married. That's okay. I mean, we, we get really caught up in people, in, in people saying, you know, just be happy where you are, which is true. But it's okay, it's okay to want things. You know what I mean? It's, it's totally fine to say, Lord, this is what I believe you've spoken over me and I will have it. That's how we should approach the Lord. We should be so confident in the promise of God that we don't patty cake with the Lord. I'm not going to God and saying, Lord, I hope this church works out. You know what I, No, I'm going to the Lord and I'm saying, you told me to do this, this is your problem. If we need money, you're gonna have to figure it out. I'm not. Well, how can you talk to the Lord? I'm, I'm holding his promise. 
And according to David in Psalms, those who the Lord loves do not fail. There is no risk of failure with the Lord. No risk. If the Lord speaks, you cannot fail. So st- we need to stop playing like patty cake with all these promises that we have. Like, man, I hope this comes to pass. No, it better come to pass because you spoke it. Huh? Oh, Josh, I don't know if you can talk to the Lord like that. I would talk, if, if Jordan promises me something, I'm not going to be like, well, man, I hope she does that. I'm going to say, no, you said you were going to do this. This is what we're doing. Right? So some of you are holding some of these things, and I just want we need to believe that the Lord will do what he said. So, so for this year, I've shared this with you guys, and to be honest with you, I've shared it kind of reluctantly because it seems like completely outlandish. Our church budget is barely, I mean, barely over six figures. Barely. That includes everything. That includes rent, that includes staff, that includes all of our operation throughout the year, utilities, every event that we do. That is pennies compared to any other church. I mean, y'all should see some church budgets. They're not a lot. We live off of crumbs, very helpfully. Have no debt. We got thousands in the bank. I mean, we do great with our finances. Okay? But this year, my spiritual father, Lee McDermott, in our meeting that we had in January, we, we meet once a year to approve the budget and all this other stuff. And he said, I think this might be the year that we need to start praying for a six-figure gift to come into the church which would be an entire year's budget in one check. And my first reaction was, that's funny. You know, you shouldn't play with people like that, you know. <laughs> He's dead serious. And I started thinking about it, and I said, now, why would I not pray that unless I believe we could fail? If I believe there was a chance of failure, then maybe that's not a prayer I should pray. But, Lord, you promised us this. You promised us a building. So we're going to wait on the Lord, but at the same time, we are not going to lose heart while we are waiting because we know as long as we don't give up, we will reap a harvest. You and I, we cannot waver in our faith for the things that God has promised us, even if it's taking a while for them to come to pass. We must be steady. Hebrews also says we need to persevere so that we have, when we have done the will of God, we will receive what he has promised. Persevere. The right thing in the wrong season is the wrong thing, but the guarantee that we have to hold on to is God's promise. When God speaks, it must come to pass. And let me remind you in 2 Peter 3, 9. Isaiah, you can hop up here. When he says... The Lord, and I mentioned this in worship, but let me just remind you again. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow about his promise, but is patient. When I say slow, and I mentioned this in worship, so you guys already have an idea of this. Like just for example, if somebody comes into work for five weeks in a row and is late every single day, what do you think typically about that person? I would think they're super lazy, right? They're slow, they don't care, they don't care. So let's say this, slow carries with it the feeling of They don't care. But when you're a kid, what is one of the things, at least my parents did this, maybe your parents didn't do this, but one of the most consistent messages, sermons, that I got from my parents was, you need to be patient. Did y'all? Yeah, you, you need to be patient. You need to be patient. You need to be patient. Patient and slow might have the same time frame. But there's a major difference in patience compared to slowness. Patience is care. Patience says, I know when the right moment is, and when that right moment shows up, I will act. 
But until then, because of my love for you, I won't. Uh, most of us, and myself included in this category, and the Lord's fixing this in me, most of us, if we're being completely honest, we look at the Lord's track record and nine times out of 10, we'll say about whatever we're holding in our hands, whatever promise that the Lord is slow. And what we're really saying, which we don't have enough guts to say, which is probably a good thing, is we believe he doesn't really care. We believe that God hypes us up with promises only to come around and disappoint us on the back end. I mean, that's, that's really what a lot of the church believes, which is why we pray things like, I believe you're gonna do this, but even if you don't, I'll still worship. Which is not a bad prayer. But I think where we need to move into is, I know what you said and I refuse to let up until I taste the thing in fullness that you promised me. So I refuse to let up with what we are doing in this church until I taste and see the thing that I've been promised. And I don't think the Lord's being slow in us at all right now. I think the Lord is being patient. I think the Lord is letting it stew and letting it simmer and letting all the flavors, it's getting close to lunchtime, letting all the flavors just begin to rise up. And at the proper time, we're gonna look back and say, thank God we didn't taste the fullness of what we were designed for back in 2023. We were, we were not ready for it. Absalom might've been the best king Israel ever had. We will, we will never know. Absalom might have been a better king than Solomon had he just waited. Adonijah might have been the best, he might've been better than David. What if Adonijah's design was for Jesus, rather than constantly being called the son of David, Adonijah living so far into his destiny that maybe Jesus is even identified as the son of Adonijah. the son of Absalom. I think that would have been Solomon had he not failed in his life. Jesus is called son of David more than he's called anything else in the New Testament. Son of David, son of David, son of David, son of David. And if you look at the lineage, I want you to hear this. If you look at the lineage of Jesus in the gospels, it goes David, Solomon. In Jesus's legacy. Do you know who was supposed to be in that lineage? Absalom and Adonijah. Because of their unwillingness to wait a minute on the Lord, they forfeit the opportunity to give birth to something that would one day be the son of the living God, word in flesh. And I wonder how many leaders and how many people and how many people that even started in the church and they're not even in the church anymore were designed to be the lineage that Jesus reigns through in the earth, but because of their unwillingness to wait and get seated under a father and a mother and receive the way the Lord wants to do in his timing and how he wants to do it, how many people have forfeited the opportunity to bring Jesus Christ into the earth through their legacy? How many people? Solomon's name means peace. Peace. Wholeness in perspective is knowing who you are, what God has spoken, and seeing the purpose in every single moment in between God's declaration and the inheritance of that declaration. Wholeness of perspective is seeing everything as having purpose and success as simple obedience. One more time, I'm gonna read that last sentence. Wholeness of perspective is seeing everything as having purpose 
and seeing success as simple obedience. You, every one of you in this room are successful in life because the Lord measures success in one way and it's simple obedience. As you keep giving the Lord a yes and you're successful. The, we've got to move, I said this last week, we've got to move from this mindset of quantity to a mindset of, of quality. So I'm gonna finish with this. And I'm saying this at the risk of losing you. Um, right now, if, you're, if you haven't been watching what's going on in the economy, um, the economy is teetering dangerously close to 2008, dangerously close. And some of you aren't even old enough to know what happened in 2008. M most, most of you were. Um, but that's when all the banks just begin to fail, right? And when the banks fail, of course, the economy starts toppling. Now, this is what the, now I, I promise this has a point. This is not an economic class, but the Fed kind of wants this to happen. So for, it's, it's a good and bad. The good news is inflation will go down. The bad news is we all might lose our money. Okay, I'm, and I'm, we're not gonna lose our money. I'm just saying, that's, that's kind of how they're thinking. Anyway, so the stock market, if you watch this, has just been, has kind of been cratering, right? Now here's the point in all this. For the past five years, give or take, all of these big companies like Apple and Facebook and Microsoft and Netflix all of these, these big tech companies, have Tesla, have been exploding beyond their worth. Okay? So if you watch CNBC at any point or whatever, you'll hear them say this a lot. The, the price that people are buying their stock at is like tens of 20s of 30s of times higher than what the company is even worth. And if you keep doing that, at some point when the economy stalls like it is, guess what? All that is going to come tumbling down. If you ever hear about the dot-com bubble, that's exactly what happened in the, early, in the Y2K. Y'all remember Y2K? Everybody's hiding behind couches thinking that the world was going to explode because it was the year 2000. Um, can y'all believe we did? Can y'all believe that's a real thing? You know? But uh, I remember hiding behind my grandparents' couch. 10, nine, I'm like ducking down. And then it gets to the new year and we're looking around like, I, I mean, we're good, you know, we're solid. Remember when everybody bought tissue paper and water? It's like, like water's gonna help you. You know, like if the earth just crumbles to the ground, at least we got 10 cases of water in the pantry and toilet paper, you can't, you know. So anyway, anyway, but this is what's happening. And it's because for years, People have made money off of quantity, not quality. They weren't buying quality stocks. They were buying these stocks that were growing in quantity astronomically and making a lot of money. But what's happened over the past year as the economy slowed down is all those people who made tons of money off of it are now losing tons of money because they didn't buy something in quality. They bought something in quantity. Those who were buying quality stocks haven't lost that much money. Here's my, here's my point. This is, this is what happens in daily life. For some reason, when it comes to the kingdom, we do not think like this. I don't know why. I don't know where this ever creeped in. All we think of is quantity, 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 quantity. And Jesus says stuff like this. The kingdom of heaven starts like this, the mustard seed, which is one of the tiniest seeds that you could buy. Yet, when it becomes fully grown, it's one of the biggest bushes in the garden that trees, birds come and plant their homes in it. So, what? Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. It is a pure quality substance that at the proper time will affect the whole. This is the kingdom. 
And it's not just the kingdom, this is your life. The Lord is creating a pure quality on the inside of you that if you're not careful, if you're looking at it with the eyes of how everybody else looks at it, you're going to look at it and say, well, that's not much. I bet when they looked at the 120 in the upper room that were not as well educated as the Pharisees and the other religious scribes, they had to look at them and say, well, that's not much until the entire globe is evangelized by that 120. The kingdom is always about quality over quantity. Here's the ironic part. The quality always becomes the quantity. But the quantity, if it starts with quantity, can never, in my opinion, become the quality. You have to start with the quality first. It's the equivalent of taking a batch of dough that has been fully cooked and then after it's cooked and cooled off taking yeast and just dumping it on top of it it's not gonna do anything it's just gonna be bread with a bunch of yeast on top of it you have to start with the yeast let the yeast work its way through the dough then cook it and then it's fully affected you see what i'm saying so what's happening in your life and i just want to speak this over you what's happening in your life is the lord is concentrating a pure quality substance on the inside of you called kingdom. And if you will just wait for that substance to permeate the whole of who you are, you're going to become the exact thing the Lord has called you to if you don't give up. So so those of you that are waiting on a spouse, instead of looking at, man, this is taking forever. I want you to start looking at it, and I know it's easier said than done, but I want you to start looking at it and saying, what prize does the Lord have for me that he's taking this long to mature it? And maybe you're waiting on the right job. What prize does the Lord have waiting for me that he's taking this much time to make sure it's right? Rachel, when she paints a picture, if she paints a picture and she could do it because she does it just about every week, but if she could paint, a, if she painted a picture in five minutes, it would be a pretty good picture. It would have no detail. It'd have, you know, but it, it'd be a pretty good picture. It'd be way better than the picture I, I would paint, you know? But if you give Rachel five days to work on one piece of art, you're gonna look at that thing and you're gonna see dimensions and colors and vibrancy that you could not create in five minutes. The Lord is creating a masterpiece with your life, with my life, and with our church. We just need to stop trying to rush Him. We need to stop trying to rush the process and know God cares about your story more than you care about your story. God cares about you more than you care about you. God cares about you being in the right place at the right time with the right people more than you care about it. So just trust. And I'll end with this, enjoy the process. Just have fun, enjoy it. One of these days, I'm not gonna be able to to sit here and preach to a room that I know every single person's name. I mean, there's, there's probably gonna come a day where that's not gonna be as feasible as it is today. Just, I'm just, I'm just enjoy it, you know. Just have fun. There's going to be a day where we have millions of dollars in a budget, and with millions of dollars in a budget comes millions of problems. Trust me, you know. And right now, man, we pay our bills in three seconds. Rent, utilities. <laughs> That's it, you know. I mean, but these are the days we're going to look back on and say, man, I wish, I wish I knew. It's like The Office, I'll quote The Office. With Andy, I cry every time. But he says, I wish you knew you were in the good old days when you were actually in them. Every time I cry, you know? But I'm like, man, I wish we knew how great of a season we're in right now and didn't take until hindsight to look back and say, ah, I see. So just enjoy it and trust the Lord. Okay, let me pray over you and we'll be done. Lord, I thank you for this family. I thank you for what you're doing in us. But God, I I thank you that you are a God that is patient, that you are a God that cares so much 
on a detailed level about us that you're not willing to let us miss out on anything. And so Lord, I just pray today as you are working out processes in the room, as you're working out details of our story, I pray that we would just be able to trust you enough to say, you are working it out. You're working all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. I don't have to see it. As long as I'm holding a promise, that's all I need. If I'm holding a promise, I do see it. So God, we honor you today. We love you. We trust you with every part of our lives, whether it be our futures, whether it be our finances, whether it be what we're doing tomorrow, whether it be a decision that we have to make, whether it be something we're waiting for, whether it be a relationship that we're being prepared for, all aspects of our lives, we believe that you are the one who holds the key to every piece of it. So we put our trust in you, in all of it, so that we can be like Zion, watching the weather, the beauty of what's rising and falling, living and dying around us, knowing you're the one that controls it all. And therefore we can simply bear the image of the one who does. So it's in your name, we all pray together, amen.